We have two scriptures, scripture passages tonight. An Old Testament scripture passage and a New Testament scripture passage. The Old Testament scripture passage is Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 11. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 1,128. And then our New Testament scripture passage is 1,652, page 1,652. It's John chapter 4. Verse 21 through 24. Before we read, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, bless the reading and preaching of your word. May we tonight, Lord, be rooted in that confession of faith that we all share together. A summary of what your scriptures teach. And Lord, may we see in your word who you are. For what we gain is you and you alone. And you are everything. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it, let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. In John chapter 4, verse 21 through 24, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Having now gone through the Heidelberg Catechism uh, twice, I thought it would be helpful for us if we looked at the Belgic Confession of Faith. And so tonight we're looking at Belgic Confession Article 1. It can be found in the back of your green Psalter hymnals on page 70. And there I will read what Article 1 of the Belgic Confession of Faith says. We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is one only simple and spiritual being, which we call God, and that he is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. And that's what the Belgic Confession of Faith says.
John Piper is known for a variety of uh, semi-provocative statements that are meant to grab your attention, like Christian hedonism. What does that mean? Uh, But one of these provocative statements, if you want to know what Christian hedonism is, you can come ask me afterwards. One of these provocative statements that he said over the years, and I, I agree with him, is this. God is the gospel. It's not an answer that you would regularly get if you were to go to someone and say, can you tell me what the gospel is? What is the gospel? All the times when you hear people say, what is the gospel, they will tell you about, well, Jesus came, he died for our sins, and, uh, and he's given us eternal life. And so, what has made the emphasis in that dis- dis- description of the gospel is what Jesus uh, does for us by taking away our sins and giving us his righteousness. Now, I don't mean to, and John Piper doesn't mean to, take away from those things by making the statement that God is the gospel. But the ultimate, he's saying those things are penultimate, this is the ultimate. The ultimate good of the gospel, the ultimate thing that we receive is not the forgiveness of our sins nor the reception of God's righteousness through Jesus Christ. Those things are things that we receive in order that we might get God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So, my theme statement tonight is, God is the gospel. But a question I want us to ask about this is, if God is the ultimate thing that we receive in the gospel is to have God himself. And the way that I often speak of this is that Christ, his work in forgiving us of our sins and giving us his righteousness so that we can be united to him so that we could have fellowship with God. So that we could be brought back close to God. If this is the truth, God is the gospel, then the next question ought to be, who is God? A criticism often about contemporary worship music is that it's a lot of talking about a God that nobody knows about. It's generic words strung together that don't really speak to who God is. And if the best thing that we receive in the gospel is God, but we don't know anything about God, then we're not going to think that's all that great, is it? And that's why as we begin to look at the Belgian Confession of Faith, we're going to get into articles that speak more to the realities 
of being united with Christ, of being forgiven of our sins, justification by faith alone, all these things that we like often to talk about. But we cannot forget that these foundational first articles who tell us about who God is and how we know about God are really what makes the gospel so good. Because in the gospel we get God himself. God is the gospel. So we have three points tonight. The cause of this confession. The core to this confession. And the character of this confession. Now one thing I want to make clear is that because of the nature of the Belgic Confession and many of the things that it describes, what you're often going to hear me do when I bring up Scripture passages is something called a proof text. I'm going to say this is a Scripture passage that supports what the Belgic Confession says here. That means that oftentimes we're not able to go into the context of what is being said more deeply than we would otherwise. But that doesn't mean that what I'm saying is wrong. What I'm telling you is you should go look up at the context. You should go read the whole scripture. I've done that. I've determined that these scripture passages back up what the Belgic Confession is saying. But I encourage you to do the same. Okay? I still do think it is important for us to have these conversations about what it is that we confess to believe in this church. So let's start with the cause of this confession. The cause of this confession is going to cover the words, we all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth. When the article begins with the words, we all, it is the declaration of the faithful church. And it's important that when we talk about the cause of the confession that we understand the historical context in which this confession was written. And in order to do that, I'd like to read you a short summary of what the history of the Belgic Confession is and why it has been come to be called the Belgic Confession and why it is one of our three standards, three forms of unity. It's among the first of the doctrinal standards of the churches of Dutch heritage. And it was typically called the Confession of Faith, but now usually referred to as the Belgic Confession, following the 17th century Latin designation, Confessio Belgica. In the 16th century, when the Confession was first composed, Belgica designated the entirety of the Netherlands, both north and south, which today is divided into distinct countries, the Netherlands and Belgium. The Confession's chief author, author was Guido de Bray. Guido de Bray was a preacher of the Reformed Churches of the Netherlands. During the 16th century, the churches in this country were exposed to the most terrible persecution by the Roman Catholic government. To protest against this cruel oppression and to prove to the persecutors that the adherents of the Reformed faith were not rebels, as was laid to their charge, but law-abiding citizens who professed the true Christian doctrine according to Holy Scriptures, Debray prepared this confession in the year 1561. This is the year in which we will say 
Megiddo 1561. The following year, a copy was sent to King Philip II, together with an address in which the petitioners declared that they were ready to obey the government in all lawful things, but that they would offer their backs to the stripes, their tongues to knives, their mouths to gags, and their whole bodies to the fire, rather than deny the truth expressed in this confession. Nearly every copy of Debray's confession was destroyed by official order. Only two copies still exist. In the year 1567, Guido Debray suffered the kind of martyr's death he had described. This is written by a man who was in the midst of warring nations based on the contrast between Roman Catholicism and what was later called the extreme reformers, the Anabaptists. And I want to make clear for all of our Baptist brothers and sisters here, the Anabaptists is not referring to them. Anabaptists at the time of the Reformation were people who were anarchists, wanted to throw off all kinds of government and regulation, and they were uh, radicals. And so, a lot of the Roman Catholics were dumping reformers like Guido de Bray, like those in the Dutch region, like those in the uh, continent, into this Anabaptist category. And so, Guido de Bray wrote this confession to explain to them, no, we have a lot more in common with you, Roman Catholics, than we do with the Anabaptists. We hold to the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and uh, we hold these same Trinitarian beliefs, same doctrinal standards to a point. And here, though, is where we differ from you and where we differ from the Anabaptists. But we're not these crazy rebels who are going to destroy the civility and the, uh, the culture and the society that we have. But listen to the conviction that Guido de Bray had when he wrote this confession of faith. Because I believe we are facing a future where we're going to need to have this kind of conviction about what we believe. He sent a copy to King Philip II with an address that said they were ready to obey the government in all lawful things, but that they would offer their backs to the stripes, their tongues to knives, their mouths to gags, and their whole bodies to the fire, rather than deny the truth expressed in this confession. It's a simple question, but maybe harder to answer. How many of us are ready to do the same if it comes to it? Guido de Bray, the writer of the Belgian Confession of Faith, lost his life because he was. We all... He said, believe with the heart, confess with the mouth. Romans chapter 10, verse 10. 
is where Guido de Bray pulled from in order to make that first statement. Romans chapter 10, verse 10, says a very important statement that was important to the Reformers. Romans chapter 10, verse 10 says, For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Romans 10 goes on later to say, How then can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It has often been said that these words were, were the great commission to the reformers. They saw greater importance in the mission of the church in these words at that time in history than they saw in the great commission. That if people were going to confess with the mouth and believe with their hearts that they are justified, then preachers needed to be sent. The cause of this confession is that Guido de Bray wanted to have a confession written for the church, for we all, that we all could agree to, that said, these are what we believe the scriptures teach, these things. And we are willing to do whatever it is that we can to be lawfully obedient to you. But we will not deny this confession. Those are important things to keep in mind as we continue to look at the Belgic Confession because many years have passed and for, all, for many of us, I could say that maybe we've taken these statements for granted or forgot what they've cost our brothers and sisters who have come before. Let's look at the second point, the core to this confession. Core of this confession is that next statement. We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is one only simple and spiritual being which we call God. Isaiah 43, one of our passages, or Isaiah 44, one of our passages tonight, this passage in Isaiah is often called the trial of the false gods. It's when the prophet goes through and, and God is saying, this is how I'm God. Why don't you ask your gods how they're God? And it's a question that uh, doesn't intend an answer because it's obvious that only God is God. We read it. I am the first and I am the last. A phrase that will be carried on into Revelation as a declaration of God's identity. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me. What has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come? There is no other rock, I know, not one. Isaiah chapter 44, the trial of the false gods, is a declaration of God's existence as the only God. And what he's saying here is, 
can the other gods not only tell you why things happened before, but how things are to be to come? Only I know that, because only I am God. The first thing that we say that there is one. Monotheism is the word that we use. To describe the belief in one God. Mono mean one, theism mean uh, belief in God. Belief in one God. Monotheism is the consistent chorus in Scripture. There is a continuous declaration over and over again, particularly in the Old Testament, that God is one. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 what we call the Shema. It is the confession of faith of the Israel people, is the Israelite people. It is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So Christians, we are monotheists. And this is then where it gets a little bit more tricky. The next word is simple. We believe with all the heart and confess with the mouth that there is one only simple. Today, in our day and age, when we say the word simple, we might think that what we mean is um, not very complex. Um, Simple means easy to grasp. But when theologians use the word simple... What they are saying is that God is not made of parts. So if complex is the opposite of simple, complex means made up of many parts. Simple means not made of parts. And the way that I would describe this to you as best as I can is that you cannot break God apart into little chunks and pieces. And God is so beyond us that even when we describe him, excuse me, even when we describe him, we struggle to grasp at how to do that. We say that God is all these attributes. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is, but God is not one part omnipotent, one part all-powerful, one part eternal, one part all-knowing, one, you see what I'm saying? He is all those things completely, perfectly. He's not made up of parts. You cannot take the persons of the Trinity away from the divine essence. Nor will there ever be the slightest contradiction or conflict between any of the divine attributes. And the way that I would try to explain this to you, give you an example of this, would be oftentimes in our day and age, we try to pit God's wrath and God's grace against each other. As if they're in competition against each other. As if God cannot be both a wrathful God and a gracious God. But if God is not made of parts, then he is the God of wrath and he is the God of grace. He's not part wrath 
and part grace. And the same way when we declare, as John does in 1 John, God is love. We are not saying God is the most loving. We are not saying anything like that. We're saying God is love. God is wrath. God is grace. God is just. He is those things perfectly. He's not made up of parts. And the last thing that we read is that we believe in one only simple and spiritual being. And God is a spirit and does not have a body like a man is one of the answers to the catechism questions in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's also what Jesus declares to the woman at the well. It's important that we understand that when Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, the subject matter is that of worship. And the woman said to Jesus, we believe we should worship on this mountain, but you Jews believe you should worship on that mountain. And Jesus, his response to her is, you Samaritans, you worship what you don't understand, which is, Right now, at this time and in this day and age, it is proper to worship in Jerusalem because that's what God has ordained. But there is a time coming where God is not going to ask you to worship on this mountain or on that mountain or in this place or in that place. God is going to want worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. And to back up Jesus' declaration of this, that through him... When he died on the cross and was resurrected three days later and ascended to sit at the right hand of God the Father and poured out the Holy Spirit, and we all believers were justified by faith and united to him, that through him we would worship God in spirit and in truth, he says this, God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. This one only simple and spiritual being we call God. You might be sitting there thinking to yourself, Carrie, why are we getting into all these theological terms and, and attributes and all this stuff? But this is what I want you to think of. When you're sitting at home and you get a call and it's not a call you want, something bad has happened. Something's gone terribly wrong in your life. Someone you care about, someone you love has died. When something like that goes on in your life, do you want a small God a generic God, a God that we sing to but we don't know anything about? Or do you want a big God? One of the most comforting things that we can know about God because he's revealed himself is that he's simple. And not simple because he's easy to comprehend, 
One of the biggest and greatest comforts that comes from understanding his simplicity is this. God cannot change. You cannot take away from him. You cannot add to him. He is perfect. He is sufficient. And that's the kind of God I want to know when I get a call like that. Finally, let's look at the character of this confession. This can be taken two ways. First, we could see this as the characteristics, the, the nature of this confession. Or, uh, or we could say that this, the character is another word for the character of God, his attributes. Okay, um, The character of this confession is grounded in who God is, how he's revealed himself in his word. We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is one only simple and spiritual being which we call God and that this God is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. I'm going to break these characteristics into two categories. The first characteristics or attributes of God are what we call incommunicable attributes, incommunicable attributes. And what we mean by incommunicable attributes is that there's no way anything like this can be found in us. That these are uniquely God's characteristics alone. They share no similarities to his creatures who are made in his image. But the communicable attributes are those that have some reflection in us, people who are created in his likeness. So, incommunicable attributes include that he's eternal, incomprehensible. I'm going to shorten that. Invisible. Immutable. Infinite. Almighty. All right. When we say that God is eternal, we are meaning that he has no beginning or end. The Lord transcends all time and space, and yet he fills all that time and space. Psalm 90 is descriptive about this. In verse 2 it says, Before the mountains were born, where you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so in verse 12 of the same psalm, we see confessing this teaches us, to number our days aright. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is eternal. When we say God is incomprehensible, that means we cannot understand him. Now, I think that's something we can all agree on. Is incomprehensibility right? That we cannot understand him? 
And this brings me to one of my favorite uh, song lyrics from a band that I listened to for many years and still continue to go back to their songs. And it, it says this. Is your God really God? Is my God really God? I think our God isn't God if he fits inside our heads. Incomprehensibility means that we are confessing that God does not fit inside our little boxes. That is beyond our ability to completely and entirely understand. There's no way we can work out what he's doing or what he's like. Here we must cry out with the prophet in Isaiah 40 verse 18. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? Congregation, he is the great and mighty God. He's full of majesty. When we say this God is invisible, we mean you can't see him. Well, you can't, can you? As Jesus says in John 3, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. You know it's there, but you can't see it. But especially this means that no one can know God except, of course, by the Son. In the words of John 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but God, the only Son, who's at the Father's side, has made Him known. When we say that God is immutable, what we're saying is that God's essential being doesn't change. And neither does what He does, what He plans to do, and what He promises to do. This is what I'm telling you about. It's a comfort. Because people can so quickly change. And it's so devastating, isn't it, then? How quickly things change, how things come and go, how things seem to be like sand falling from our hands, falling away from us. We try to grip onto it. We try to grasp it. But God stays the same. James 1, verse 17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. People change. God does not. When we say that God is infinite, we are saying He is without limits. And so we've reminded, we're reminded that we cannot get away from His presence. He is everywhere always. Psalm 139 verse 7 clearly says this. Where David declares to God, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. And when we say that God is almighty, we are saying that he has all power, all his might. This is what he declared through the angel to Mary in Luke 1 verse 37. There we hear the words, for nothing is impossible with God. And so then when we talk about communicable attributes, we're talking about wisdom, just, justice, goodness. And the overflowing fountain of all good. These are communicable attributes. They have some reflection in us, people who are created in his image. When we are saying that God is perfectly wise, we are declaring that he knows it all. And to a certain degree, by faith, we can have some of that knowledge too. Psalm 104 speaks of this in verse 24. It says, How many are your works, O Lord? 
and wisdom, you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. When we say that God is just, we're saying God is righteous in who he is and what he does. He's holy, and his holiness comes through as he rewards good and punishes evil. There is more than a big man up there, to use colloquial language. He's involved in our lives right down here. As Isaiah 40 verse 14 says rhetorically, Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? God is the one who is just. And when we say that God is good, this also means that God is the only one who's truly good. As the Lord Jesus said in Mark 10 verse 18, when the rich young ruler came to him and said, A good teacher, no one is good except God alone. He is perfectly perfect. No wonder that we find in Psalm 136 the chorus at the end of each verse declaring, His love endures forever. Because it does. He's absolutely good. He is the overflowing fountain of all good. Everything begins and ends with God. His glory alone, soli deo gloria. And so when we take a moment to look at the scriptures, to examine who God is and how he's revealed himself to us. We take a moment to break down these attributes, these characteristics which we find described about God in the scriptures. That this one only simple and spiritual being is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. If we take a moment to try to wrap our minds around that as best as we possibly can to see how big our God really is, does that not make the gospel all that more amazing? That the God who created the heavens and the earth, that the God who is perfect, eternal, God-only wise, outside of time and history, simple in a spiritual being, immutable, infinite, almighty, that is the God who stepped into human history and put on flesh, who lived and died and was raised again three days later. That is the God who we get in the gospel. When I think about that, the words that ring out in my mind are the words that David says in the psalm. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man. That you give any attention to him. It might make sense that a God this great and this wonderful would cast a a quick side look at us, his measly creatures. But the grace of God goes beyond that. The grace of God set his love upon us in Jesus Christ. And he would not let heaven or hell our own wickedness and sin 
our own lack of righteousness and holiness, keep that from giving us to him, from giving himself to us. God is the gospel. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And these words from Peter are to you, to bring you to God. The God described for us in Article 1 of the Belgic Confession. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. We pray, Lord, that we would know who you are, how you've revealed yourself to us. We pray, Lord, that we, in times of trial and hardship, would know that you, Lord, are the creator of the heavens and the earth, and you are the God who has redeemed us in Jesus Christ, your Son. You are eternal, immutable. You will not change. You are almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, the overflowing fountain of all good, infinite, incomprehensible, invisible. You are our God. And you say to us, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's how we will always be, Lord, throughout all eternity. Thank you for the gospel that has brought us to you. To Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing.